Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. The Academy Podcast is brought to you by the Academy for Spiritual Formation, an international ministry of the Upper Room. The Academy is dedicated to creating safe space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about our five-day and two-year retreat offerings, visit academy.upperroom.org. I'm your host, Claire McKeever-Burgett, and I serve as the Associate Director of the Academy. I'm also ordained clergy, a birth and postpartum doula, a yoga, dance, and movement instructor, a mother, a partner, a friend. We're glad you're here. In this month's episode, we are joined by the teachings of Sophia Fasua. Professor Fasua is the Assistant Professor of Christian Worship and Christian Ministry at Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. Her research interests include contextual liturgy, the Psalms, and the uses of poetry and spoken word in worship. Prior to her work at Wesley Seminary, Sophia served for 10 years as the Director of Transformational Preaching Ministries of the General Board of Discipleship for the United Methodist Church. She and her husband, the Reverend Dr. Kwasi Kenna, also served as missionaries to Ghana, West Africa, assisting the Methodist Church of Ghana in curriculum writing, leader development, and local pastors' education. Sophia has served churches in Iowa and New Jersey and has been in frequent demand as a preacher, speaker, Bible study leader, and worship designer for national events. She and her husband have two adult children and are the proud grandparents of two grandchildren. In her spare moments, Sophia writes prayers and Christian poetry and enjoys needle crafts, quilting, and batik. The following episode draws from Sophia's teaching on Afrocentric theology and black worship at a two-year academy in Alabama in February 2006. A reminder that these recordings come from live plenary sessions, which is why you'll sometimes hear coughing, laughing, and other affirmations in the background. We've done our best to edit out distractions while also working to maintain the integrity of the real-life, in-person teaching that our spiritual guides offer. Offering us a rich history of Afrocentric theology and worship, Sophia invites us to consider the themes of belonging, contemplation, and the vital impact of black theology on the Christian church as we know it. You, you've, you've heard it a different way. In the morning when I rise. The faster way, that, that one that you heard uh, yesterday is uh, probably ranks more with the spirituals. And after emancipation, but many of the spirituals were grounded in the experience of slavery. So the spirituals almost died out of the church for a period of time because they said, well, we're free now, so why are we singing about that? After a while, people began to realize the spirituals are a part of our spiritual heritage and should not be allowed to die. But in many places, if you go to a black church, you can go and go for a month of Sundays and never hear a single spiritual. 
because now they're part of the classical uh, literature of the church. And so you'll have the choir that may do an elaborate arrangement of a spiritual, just like some of the, your choirs may take one of the spirituals and do an elaborate arrangement. But as far as singing them every week, I think maybe in South Carolina when I was visiting churches out there, I heard a few of the black churches out there still using them as a regular part of worship. Uh, we attempted at a church start that we had to include them uh, once or twice a month as a regular part of worship. But now there has to be intentionality about it because the spirituals began to just die and wane because people said, we're not enslaved anymore. We don't need to sing about that. So in its place, there arose these variations on the song. So you'll find that some of the songs morphed and turned into something else. Another thing that happens in uh, uh, black worship is that the, the, the hymns are rearranged a thousand times. Uh, it was years before I knew that Guide Me, O Thy Great Jehovah wasn't that slow way that I had learned. Yeah, it was years. In fact, I, I, I was United Methodist by then and, 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 and in a worship service and supposedly in an official capacity and I saw it in the bulletin and I said, oh good. And then when they went, guide me, oh thy great Jehovah, I went, what have they done to my song? <laughs> <laughs> so the hymns get rearranged a thousand times over and um, as you can tell by the creative use of rhythms and polyrhythms, polyrhythms is when you have people clapping in different rhythms and they work together. We did something polyrhythmic with the song that we sang after we came back from the um, Civil Rights Institute. That was polyrhythmic and that was, it was canon and it was polyrhythm because there were several things going on simultaneously. But polyrhythms are when you have people becoming the drum and, and clapping in different rhythms. And there's a synergy that goes with coming together like that and learning to work in sync like that, which mirrors what we hope will happen with people when they're outside of the church house, that they will work in sync with one another. The, the uh, contemplation in community theme, I don't think we've dealt with enough, but I think Barbara Holmes dealt with it really well in her book as she talked about how coming together and singing, can you imagine singing 10, 15, 20 minutes as we sang earlier, you know, two sessions ago, uh, with a variety of the songs and one song just melts into another, there's no announcements, there's no lining out, you just kind of catch on and learn it as you're going. That becomes group contemplation done in musical form instead of done in silence. And the same thing happens in many of the um, songs like this in the morning. In the morning, you could sing that 10, 15, 20 minutes uh, with variations that are put in and different polyrhythms with the clapping that happens. And what it becomes is a hesychasm, which is a repetition of a word or a phrase for the purpose of getting it from your head into your spirit. The hesychasm that we might be most familiar with is the Jesus prayer. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The songs were, were, were constructed in, at one time and, and continue to be constructed. Some of our preachers do not like them and they call them 7-Eleven songs, seven words sung 11 times. <laughs> you know, they, they don't like them, but I, I hold on to them and encourage others to do so if they have good um, words in them because they become hesychasm, which reminds us of what it is that we are to be or to do or to think 
about. And so just think about singing in the morning when I rise, I want to rise holy. You sing that a hundred times and you're walking through the day. In the morning when I rise, I want to see Jesus. In the morning when I rise, I want to rise holy. In the morning when I rise, I want to live right when I rise. So you think about when I get up, this is what I'm about today. So they become hesychiastic because uh, the repetition puts it inside of the, of the singer. After you've sung it in community and it becomes one of your gathering songs, it becomes one of your celebration songs, after a while you're at the, at, at the, at the sink doing the dishes and you're, you're singing, you know, inside of your heart. Even if the rest of the people are talking and you're not interested in what they're talking about and you retreat to a song on the inside, those kinds of songs tend to bubble up again and again. So they're a frequent uh, teaching device in the black community church because of the, uh, the, the ability of a word and a phrase and, 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 and a short rhythm to get inside of your spirit and become a part of who you are and what you're thinking about. Now, this is, this is the turning point that, that I think would be important. Uh, we talked about the particularity of African peoples brought over to the United States and how in that peculiar institution, that's one of the phrases scholars use for slavery, in that peculiar institution, hope against hope, they found the gospel. They found the gospel, they put it in terms, in forms that were uh, uh, easy for them to use and easy for them to communicate with one another. You saw uh, Baby Suggs preaching yesterday and she used words and, and images and metaphors as the postmodern church would call it in order to communicate a Bible truth. Someone had heard the Bible. They didn't memorize all the words when they heard it but the core of it got inside of them and so when they came back preaching was often like that done in symbols and forms and movements and gestures and ring shouts and other things that the community could participate in but they wanted them to get the core of what it was that they had heard and received now you go to emancipation and emancipation proclamation says that these people are now free to go and live their lives like anyone else in the United States and so the invisible institution, that church that went on in the hush arbors, suddenly comes out into the forefront and it becomes the visible institution with buildings and banks and little stores where people are, 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 are buying and selling and trading groceries and, and health care is going on and burial insurance is sold there and all these things. It becomes the new village and of course the pastor becomes the new village chief or priest and sometimes a combination of both. And uh, the biggest concern becomes that of uh, respectability. We are now like everyone else in this fine country and we want to be respected and valued and, and so forth and so on. And yet when people would hear their worship from outside the walls or come in to see what was going on inside of there, it's like, what on earth are you all doing? And so because of that, the black church began to change. The uh, first uh, black churches were traditionally Baptist and Methodist because the styles of worship that were going on during the camp meeting phase of, of, of Baptist ministries and Methodist ministries were conducive to accepting the freer form that the Africans brought to the equation. So they chose Baptist or they chose Methodist, but after a while they branched out and we all know black Lutherans and black, black Presbyterians now and, and black Episcopalians and so forth. Uh, but, but, but originally they were concerned about respectability and they were concerned or maybe even intimidated about education. 
So you had pastors when they began their sermons, and you will hear it in some places to this day. You don't hear it in the United Methodist Church as much because we insist on an educated clergy. We insist that everybody has to go to seminary and, and, and pass all these tests and write all these papers and Bible studies and so forth before they're ordained. But in a typical setting, you would hear a person stand up and they would give the apology. I may not have the education that everybody else has. You know, that, that's the, the beginning of the sermon. The sermon began with an apology, but then it continued to go into the text and sometimes it was stumbling and fumbling with, with reading or having someone else read if the person was a non-reader. And you know, so you've got to get through the text some way. And then the application to the text, and then at some point during the sermon, the helper would come. And the preacher may say something like, I feel my help coming now. And they would find their stride and get into the sermon and bring in the application and preach in the rhythmic chant that has been associated with black preaching. Most of us know what that chant sounds like. We sing our sermons in some places. And even that has been condemned in lots of circles and many of our black preachers have left what we call the hoop. <laughs> it's W-H-O-O-P, hoop, you know. The hoop has been abandoned because those who were watching from the outside were saying these are uneducated people and they must have not had anything to say so they diverted into performance. In some churches it has diverted into performance but a lot of our finest preachers will preach the, 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 the firm exegetical sermons and do the expositional work and do that and then they hoop at the end so that they can help you to understand I am a black preacher. You know. From time to time I need the, I, I, I feel the need to feel like a black preacher as well, and so I may hoop the end of my sermon. But the point being that there was this tension in the black church after emancipation about fitting in. You know, the, the same thing that immigrant peoples have about fitting in, learning the language, learning the culture, learning the forms, and fitting in in every way and sense of the word. And so you have what W.E. Du Bois would call uh, two-ness. But he says, one ever feels his, and, and notice the language is reflective of his time, his Tunis, an American, a Negro, two warring souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. What is he saying here? We, we had to learn how to be two people. And, and, and I think intuitively, uh, people in America know that about, about uh, many of us as, as, as African Americans. We've had to learn how to be two people. I, I call myself instead, I've given it a new term, I'm culturally bilingual. Culturally bilingual. Savvy enough in, 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 in other cultures to, to get around, and yet I have a home-based culture as well. Now, this is what he says about this, this Tunis when he goes on in this particular speech, and this is from the souls of, of black folks, of, of our spiritual strivings is a chapter, and the book is The Souls of Black Folks, and you can find that book online. You can find that book online. The history of the American Negro is a history of this strife, this longing to attain self-conscious manhood, and remember he's writing in the early 1900s, to merge his double self into a better and a truer self. So we've got this double consciousness. Now, in other people, we would call it schizophrenia. Yeah, having
having to be somebody else and, and, and sometimes on command. So we find him saying it like this, and this is what Dunbar said about it. He says, we wear the mask that grins and lies. It hides our cheeks and shades our eyes. This debt we pay to human guile. With torn and bleeding hearts we smile and mouth with myriad subtleties. But why should the world be overwise in counting all our tears and sighs? Nay, let them only see us while we wear the mask. The poem continues, we smile, but oh great Christ, our cries to thee from tortured souls arise. We sing, but oh, the clay is vile beneath our feet and long the mile. But let the world dream otherwise. We wear the mask. In some of my pastoral care um, seminars that I, that I do sometimes for pastor schools or pastor's retreats, I use this poem to talk about that whole issue of masking that all of us participate in. We are not always free to be our authentic self, or so we think. We think that maybe our, our authentic self is not acceptable, or people won't like it, or they'll run away, or I won't get the job, or, you know, we've got all these reasons why we wear masks. But in the black community, you'll find that the double consciousness is a, t a constant tug of war, and hence the, the, the occasion for today's lecture, as we talk about Afrocentric theology and its importance in the black community. As I introduce the concept of Afrocentric theology, if you haven't already heard it before, I, I, I don't want you to hear that word and start thinking black nationalist. Afrocentric, and that's what my doctoral work is in, is Afrocentric theology. I studied with Jeremiah Wright at the United Theological Seminary. Jeremiah Wright's the pastor of Trinity, the United Church of Christ, the largest Church of Christ church, and he's in Chicago uh, with about 6,000 worshiping on Sundays. And they have a model that says, unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian. Unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian. And so studying under Jeremiah, um, we, 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 we began to study what preaching was like in black context and what are the theological sources of knowledge. Because as you look at uh, Barbara Holmes, she is encouraging that we see new sources of knowledge for studying the contemplative movement. And so we find that Anthony of the Desert and a lot of the Desert Fathers and, and, and the Amas, as they, the Abbas and the Amas that went out to the desert, some of them were Africans. We find that some of the early church fathers were African theologians. And yet no one ever tells us that. And so when we start thinking about doing theology, we don't know who to turn to that might have understood our worldview. And so we kind of end up in this, in, this, in this quagmire or we're floating in the sea wondering how to do theology. She's saying in the contemplative movement that we're very firmly grounded in doing our study of contemplation from the early church fathers and mothers who did so, so well. And that a lot of contemplation was done to music as we did you know, in that brief time after we came back from the Civil Rights Museum, was done to music as you saw Baby Suggs encouraging them to, to do the ring shout that was going on with their own rhythm, with no instruments, with their own music that they were providing before the Lord. So you find that, that there, there are other sources of knowledge for doing theology and for doing historical studies that we had not thought of. Somewhere in the bloodline of Jesus Christ, I've identified four Africans. And so now, when I start thinking about Christ the Lord, 
I'm not an afterthought. I'm not a, a Susie come lately. I'm already in that genealogy. I can find myself in the Bible. Can you imagine what that does for people who have been enslaved? Wow. Isn't that awesome? So as we start talking about this, and we know that the, the, the earthly heritage of, of Jesus Christ is not nearly as important as understanding what Christ has done for the entire world. But to be able to locate yourself in the Bible and know that a Cushite helped Jeremiah when he got out of the well. And that there were, and so anywhere in the Bible, if you start reading now, especially in the Old Testament, anywhere you see a Canaanite or a Hivite, a Jebusite, an Amorite, and all of those ites, anywhere that you see a Cushite, anywhere you see Libya or Mizraim or what have you, what have you, what have you, these are Africans who are going and coming and are just a part of the scene. And in Jerusalem, on the day of Pentecost, these people were coming from all these nations, and African nations were also represented. Other peoples are able to find themselves, but, but I preach, you know, oftentimes where, where I've got to deal with folks who are downtrodden and do not feel that they were part of God's plan until they were introduced to it lately, and it was through great calamity, and oh, thank God we're here. No, we were in God's heart and on God's mind with everybody else from the very beginning. So that's what, you know, Afro Af Afrocentric theology is is about helping people to locate themselves in the Bible text and to know that they are also important and value. It doesn't diminish anyone's value, but it just simply says that I'm, I'm there too and I thank God for that. I'm there too, and I thank God for that. What does it look like to claim a place in the lineage of Jesus, in the heart of the holy, in the spirituality and contemplation of the church? What does it mean to make space for all God's children, every hue, every sex, every creed, every rhythm, every song? What does it look like to sing the same words over and over and over again until they make their way from our heads to our hearts, from our thinking to our being, from our analyzing to our breathing? Sophia Fasua's words on Afrocentric theology remind us that the African people have been in God's heart and on God's mind from the very beginning, not to exclude anyone else, rather to make space for those who've been edged out of the narrative for far too long. Sing a song this day. Let it seep into your bones, let it pulse in your veins, let it transform the deepest parts of you. Let the song become your prayer of openness, of inclusivity, of recognition, of celebration, of all those who sing and cry and claim. I'm there too, and I thank God for that. To hear more from faculty like Sophia, 
who are spiritual directors, pastors, professors, authors, and experienced pilgrims and practitioners in the area of spiritual formation. Join us at the next five-day or two-year academy. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.